Welcome to today's class and uh, hope it's a uh, beautiful day where uh, you are. Uh, it's hard to beat a really nice good fall day, isn't it? And I am, uh, as always, I'm so grateful for those of you who uh, join us in these classes. It just makes it uh, so much fun for wherever it is that you're coming from. Uh, thank you for being here. Now, as we get started, boy, I have to tell you that uh, as, we're, as we're digging through uh, the story of, of Enoch and, and the things that are there, this little bit of scripture that we have is so laden with so many things uh, that I keep saying, okay, I'm going to wrap it up here and I'm going to wrap it up there. And boy, I tell you, we're going to probably get another, at least another class out of uh, our, our man Enoch and, and the things that he's doing. Now, as we do this, um, I want to start with uh, something actually that uh, I actually shared in uh, a sacrament meeting uh, earlier today. And that is, we're looking at the Old Testament. And as we're digging through the Old Testament, this is one of those places where people say, I just don't like what's in the Old Testament. Uh, I've mentioned before uh, a gentleman that I'd heard that said uh, he became an atheist, and they asked him why he became an atheist, and he says, I read the Bible. You know, that he just couldn't cotton the idea of, of the Jesus that he was being taught with the God of the Old Testament who was doing some of the things that uh, he did. Now, along those lines, I want to uh, just remind us of, of a couple of things. Um, and I'm going to borrow a little bit from a uh, prominent scholar who had some ideas on this and got me thinking. Here's what he said. One writer has suggested that in the Old Testament, we read a lot about sinners in the hands of an angry God, uh, where it appears like your sins are met with cataclysm. So when a city is bad, it doesn't just get preached repentance to, it gets destroyed. Um, and along with all the other things that are in the Old Testament, we're just looking like this doesn't look like the loving God of the New Testament. Wow, this God has a temper. He does all kinds of things. And man, if you sin, it's going to be miserable. You don't just have to repent. People are dying because of the drought he sends. And it just seems anything but uh, loving. Now, as we look at these instances of the Old Testament, uh, one of the beautiful parts about seeing it through restoration eyes, showing us through the revealed light and knowledge, is that uh, straight up there are, there are some reasons why it is that oft times we're reading in the Old Testament and our hearts go cold just a little bit. It just doesn't seem like there's something, seems like there's something missing here. And you would be right. Um, this one writer suggested the ultimate question of whether the doctrine of the goodness of God or that of the inerrancy of the scriptures is to prevail when they conflict. What do I do with the idea that scripture is scripture, it's canon, and it is, uh, it, it can't be an error because it's carved in stone. It was received by prophets from God and that is God's truth. Don't mess with it. Versus this inerrant word of God seems to be full of meanness and anger. And I'm not sure I like him. 
when I match it up with the goodness of God that I, that I come to appreciate from uh, watching the teachings of the Savior in so many cases on into the Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants. So which one do we take? Do we take scriptures can never be wrong or inerrant or God is really good and what do we do when they conflict? Well, as, as we continue to look through the Old Testament, can we keep some, something kind of in the back of our head uh, a little bit here uh, that, that says basically this. The question to ask ourselves is this. Does what I am reading expand my heart and my mind or does it harrow the mind and restrict the heart in other words when I'm re- if I'm not quite sure and I'm reading let's say something in the Old Testament and it just doesn't seem something seems amiss what's happening to my heart right at that moment do I feel it constrict and pull back because it just doesn't feel right or do I feel that my heart opens up to it and I'm being I'm being fed by it. Uh, I think the the uh, the line that I used uh, actually earlier in a in a talk was the fact that Alma says to uh, these poor Zoramites in Alma 32, if you're not sure, take the word and open your heart that you give place to it. Alma 32, give place that it can grow seed, and then. Feel it, test it, prove it. Does it increase my heart? Do I feel the stirrings? Do I know that it's a good seed? Or do I, am I repelled by it and it's kind of a bad seed though I don't maybe know why? The Lord intends us to test his word. If we're testing its word and finding it lacking, it may not be God's word or there may be that there's something has been uh, minimized in this in this word of his. Uh, so one thing to keep in mind here: the scriptures were compiled by a variety of prophets, many of whom had their own agendas, all of which operated with different degrees of inspiration. I do love the fact that Alma is very open about the fact that when he's talking to his son late in the, in the book of Alma and he says, I don't really know what happens to the souls of men after this life. And so I asked God last night and here's what he told me. So I, now that I got new light and knowledge, I'm going to tell you. What he isn't saying is, hey, everything that I've been teaching in all these last chapters was, was with partial light. Partial knowledge, because I didn't yet know what, what happened to the souls of men after death. So anything that I might have said was speculation on my part. And now that I have a fuller light, I'm going to tell you the fuller light. So in a modern sense, as we've said before, President Nelson is operating today with a fuller light of knowledge than did President McKay or George Albert Smith, or even Brigham Young. President Nelson has the full benefit of a, of a generation after generation of inspired men and women asking questions, getting answers, and then folding that into policy. 
And when people outside the church try and hang us on a quote by a prophet from 1940 or something that George Q. Cannon said in 1910, they spoke with the best knowledge and understanding that they had but they might have had their own some level of inspiration and maybe some level of agenda. And so we are the recipients and the blessed to have to this point the furthest accumulation of light and knowledge perhaps that has almost been on the earth ever. Except for what we're going to talk about with Enoch in a second here. Okay. So, can we keep that in mind when we're looking at the Old Testament and you're reading something and you feel your heart constrict? Because, remember, for the things that we have weren't just prophets with their own agendas and their own inspiration. It was also then whoever would write their words down and then how that was translated and how those records were kept and then any kind of uh, editing that went on on their part. Let me give you one last example on this. Um, one of the most amazing talks that we have in church history is that of the King Follett Discourse given by uh, Joseph Smith late in the spring of 1844, mere weeks before he dies. We have at least five scribes that wrote down, some by shorthand, some by longhand, what Joseph Smith said in the middle of a rainstorm on a cold day in the spring in Nauvoo. We have, we have their records, those five scribes writing down the King Follett Discourse. They're all different. They are all different. And it's only by putting them all together that we get a consensus of the five that we have a much better idea of what Joseph Smith was saying on that occasion. But even then, it's not as accurate as I think Joseph Smith would have liked it to be. So we have to be careful on that. Does our heart hear it and expand, or does our heart hear it and constrict? Now, on top of that, there was also rhetoric changes depending on the sensibilities of the audience. Who were they talking to would also change what a prophet might have said under those circumstances. So anyway... That, that, as we're looking at the Old Testament, keep, please keep that in mind. We have the added advantage as we're looking at the book of Moses to probably be much clearer to the fountain of clear water about what was said and done. And the knowledge and wonderfulness that hops out of this uh, is just a thing of beauty to me. My problem, again, with what we're looking at now is just how many lessons there are. If, you want, if you're needing a sacrament meeting talk, go here. P take your pick. There's a hundred of them. That's going to give you some light and knowledge. So I'm going to try and do some cherry picking of some of the, some of the best stuff, I think, that's uh, in here. Now, so if you're, as you're watching this, go grab your Pearl of Great Price. You're going to need it uh, to look at Moses 6 and 7. Uh, and you might even see some things uh, certainly that I chose uh, not to not to go. So, so let me just begin. I'm gonna I'm gonna hop through some of this, and and why don't you, you join with us on this? Moses six. Um, and Jared lived 162 years and begat Enoch, Jared's uh, Enoch's dad. Um, 
And after he begat Enoch, Enoch, he lived for another 800 years and begat sons and daughters. And Jared taught Enoch in all the ways of God. Now, watch what happens here. And this is the genealogy of the sons of Adam, uh, who was the son of God with whom God himself conversed. In the middle of all of the children of Adam and Eve, apparently Moses tells us that there was a genealogy kept of a series of righteous teachers who taught the gospel in the midst of all of this wickedness. They were known uh, as um, the preachers of righteousness. They were the preachers of righteousness and spake and prophesied and called upon men everywhere to repent and faith was taught uh, unto the children of men and what was taught was the gospel of Jesus Christ. The full gospel of Jesus Christ. That is one of those things that God edited out of the Hebrew Bible, their knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ. These were preachers of righteousness and there's a genealogy kept of them. My guess is that's part of what the scribes of the Old Testament were using those scrolls to begin to construct what they could of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus. Was things written by these preachers of righteousness who were the, the sons of Adam. Uh, and Enoch uh, was uh, the first and the greatest on this. Uh, probably right behind him is going to be <coughs> Melchizedek that we're going to talk about next week. Now, um, they're calling upon every, to, every man to repent, and faith is taught. And Enoch lived 65 years and begat Methuselah. One of the untold stories that I, I looked and couldn't find it was the fact that we already know, foreshadowing, um, that Enoch is gonna, and his city are going to be caught up to meet heaven. We're going to talk about that next week. But he also begat Methuselah. And the scripture says, both Moses and Genesis, that Methuselah dies. Methuselah doesn't get to go with the city of Enoch. There, that's kind of a, a sad moment. We don't have that story of him. I don't know if he said, I will stay while you guys go, you know, or he started drinking coffee and maybe he wasn't able to go. I don't know. Um, but for whatever reason, we have pretty clear proof that Methuselah didn't get to go with the city of Enoch. Don't have that story. It's got to be good. One day we'll have it in the millennium. And we get a fireside with Methuselah to say, hey, here's what happened and here's what it looked like as the city left. Good stuff. All right. Now, Enoch begat uh, Methuselah. And then it says, and it came to pass that Enoch journeyed in the land among the people. And as he journeyed, the Spirit of God descended out of heaven and abode upon him. So as he's one of these younger preachers of righteousness and he's going about the people starting to teach our indications are probably very early in his ministry he's trying to preach here comes the spirit of god and it descends out of heaven upon him now this this moment is kind of the divine call interesting thing about this divine call is that we have a number of these in scripture well, where the Lord calls who he's going to call. And it's usually the ones that nobody else expected that he would call. 
And least of all, the person being called is the least one to think I should be being called uh, because there are other people around me that are far better for this job that you have in mind. So that's when we get this wonderful moment from Enoch when the divine call comes. And, and when Enoch had heard these words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord and spake before the Lord, saying... What does he say? What he says is, Why is it that I have found favor in thy sight and am but a lad? And all the people hate me and I'm slow of speech. Wherefore am I thy servant? Now, this moment, the divine call. um, Think about how many examples we have of this in Scripture where Uh, Joseph Smith says I can't believe that a young unlearned man like me who just talked about what he saw received so much persecution uh, and I was just a young guy what's up with all of that Uh, or think about Moses hey I got a speech impediment I'm having a hard time can you get somebody to talk for me because if you're going to call me from the burning bush I'm not very good and the Lord says yeah we'll give you Joshua but you're still the job's still on you um over and over and over, we get these people. Paul, Paul, the Apostle Paul, as we know, said, you know, of all the people you could call, he called Paul. Well, that's kind of a weird thing, isn't it? That, that he would do that. Um, and as he's doing that, here's what's happening. Paul is, is saying, I'm persecuting these people. How come you're in the midst of calling me they're not going to want to hear from me in fact that they're going to it's going to scare them to death uh when i'm able uh when i'm doing this thing here okay what do i do but the lord says no i'm calling you anyway and in the in the case of uh enoch enoch is going to say i'm but a lad and people hate me and and now, so how does the Lord respond to this? I'm a lad. I'm 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 the young guy. Okay. And the Lord said unto Enoch, Go forth, as I have commanded thee, and no man shall pierce thee. <laughs> Enoch is Enoch is talking about preaching at a time when there's a possibility that if he's going to roll out and be preaching the gospel, um, he might get pierced. (laughs) And I I kind of love that phrasing. Uh, Lord, uh, I'm a lad. They don't like me. And if I preach the gospel, I might get poked with something sharp. I would rather not get pierced, if at all possible. And and it's funny that the Lord is going to say to him, Don't worry. I've commanded you. And because I've commanded you, I'll make sure, Enoch, you don't get pierced. Similar to what Joseph Smith is saying on his way to Carthage, and he says, I, and he turns to one of the, the brethren, um, and he says, I don't care how they kill me, I just don't want to be hanged. I just don't want to be hanged. And, and he just didn't want to get pierced. So, in this case, so the Lord is going to give him some kind of reassurance that that's not going to happen. 
Now, to, b before we talk about what happens next, I, I want to borrow something that Sister Craig talked about in general conference that uh, probably a, a lot of you are already uh, aware of. Um, that this was one of those things that really kind of jumped out at me that I thought, wow, man, is that really uh, profound. Sister Craig uh, talked about uh, one of my favorite stories of the Old Testament, and that's the story of the young man, the servant, who served with the prophet Elisha. And remember, this comes at a moment when there's an army approaching uh, Jerusalem, and they're a formidable army, and this young servant looks at Elisha, who comes out to look at this army, and basically he's saying, Master, how should we do? How are we going to do this? How do we stay safe from this army? What do we do? Um, and, and then we get uh, th that, that wonderful statement from Elisha, who says, that's okay. Those that are with us, are more than those that be with them. And you got to imagine that young servant looking around and going, there's an old guy and a young guy here and we're it. What do you mean those that are with us are more than those that be with them? We're not much of an army, you and I. And from that, Elisha is going to then show him something. And, and what he does is he opens up, he prays that the Lord is going to open his eyes. Why did he do that? Well, as Sister Craig points out, Elisha knew that the young man needed more than a calming reassurance. He needed vision. And in this case, Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. The Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw... And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Now the lad understood and saw what he meant when he said, those that are with us are these guys, these angelic hosts. We're safe. Now, as Sister Craig pointed out correctly, what, what is happening here is Elisha knew that even though that reassurance was there and maybe he should have just had faith, you know, Elisha could have turned to the lad and said, don't worry about it. I got it. Things will be okay. We'll, we'll make it. Wait, just, just wait. But what she talks about is that uh, he needed more than just reassurance. He needed and received vision. And I think that I think that's pretty critical. So, think about uh, with all of us. How many times when we have gotten a, a calling, for instance, or took on parenthood, or even marriage, or whatever, did we have a sense that we, were, we felt overwhelmed? We didn't feel up to the task? We were a bit uh, blown away by what it is that the Lord was asking us to do? 
And uh, to have moment, uh, somebody might come along, parents, a bishop, somebody issuing the call going, ah, you'll be okay. Don't worry about it. The Lord's got you. You'll be, we think you're awesome. Go, go get them. Uh, and you're the best person for the calling and man, you're going to be great. Well, it's nice to have reassurance that the Lord or a bishop or somebody has some uh, confidence in what we can do. But man, when, when we are hearing reassurance from the outside and we got major um, insecurities on the inside, how many times does the insecurity on the inside overwhelm the reassurance on the outside? Believe me, I spend all day in my office working with people and I'm trying to say, uh, I know what your individual personal narrative is about who you are and what you're capable of. And guess what? It's a lie. You were told that you couldn't do things. You were told to believe this or that or the other thing. But you are far more capable. Let's look at the real story and we'll go through all of this. And you are awesome and you are wonderful. And guys, I spend a lot of my day trying to provide reassurance on the outside and I'm facing somebody's insecurities on the inside. And people have a hard time going, yeah, but you're a therapist. Of course, you're supposed to think that. You know, think about as a parent, you're trying to say to your kids, hey, you're awesome. I love you. You're amazing. And they're going, yeah, you're my mom. What would I expect? Of course, you're, you're going to say that, whether it's true or not. Well, that, that reassurance also off, often gets run over by what it feels like is the reality inside of us or the reality on the outside. And so that's why Enoch is looking at it and saying, well, that's nice that you think I can do this, but my, uh, Lord, with all due respect, my experience on the ground is I'm a lad and everybody hates me. That's pretty clear. And they would really like to poke me with sharp things and make me die. And what the Lord is going to roll out here, I think, is an overall uh, lesson that we need to be able to drive home and we need to understand as we watch Enoch face uh, what feels like an overwhelming task to him. Look at how the Lord operates. He, the Lord understands very clearly when real change is needed, simple lectures won't be enough. We need more than lectures. As parents... Sometimes we want a lecture. We want to just, I'm going to spout my, my seasoned, experienced truth and it's going to land on you and you, will be, and you will believe because you have received, you've been the beneficiary of my vast store of knowledge that I'm just landing on top of you. And you will be in awe and you will believe me. And they're going, Nabro, <laughs> I'm not... I, I'm a lad. Everybody hates me. When real change is needed, simple lectures won't be enough. It requires personal experience that becomes the real gauge of our growth. In other words, we can reassure people. 
But until they, when, when we have an actual experience, whether that's what we see, whether that's what we do, whether that's what we feel, that's the feedback we get, we get validation, we begin to have vision that we didn't have. It's one thing I've been thinking all along I was a lad and all the pe people hated me, but then imagine the moment when Enoch is going to get up and start preaching and they're listening to him. Or the first time that Enoch says, he said I could move a mountain. And it, and it moves and he goes, wow, the mountain moved. I remember very clearly my very first week as a, as a young bishop and we got done with sacrament meeting and the stake president obviously was there and people were kind of noisy after sacrament meeting and there was a lot of noise and it was time to go to our next meeting and I remember I, I went up to the, the microphone and I said, could everybody uh, move on now to, to Sunday school? And they went. And afterwards, the state president said, how do you feel? And I said, president, they, they were being noisy in the chapel. I asked them to go, and they went. <laughs> and he said, well, you're the bishop. And I go, yeah, apparently, you know, I, if I did that as a counselor, Nobody had listened to me, but that's weird. Uh, and I had that, had that moment that's like, okay, there is some respect that they have for the calling. And the, they respond to that. It's very comforting. Um, so we have to have vision, and vision is an experience. It is the validation that begins to happen when we see ourselves doing things we didn't think we could do. So... Let's, let's look at how that vision then uh, takes place for Enoch. The Lord says to him this, Behold, my spirit is upon you, therefore all thy words will I justify. The mountain shall flee before you, the river shall turn from their course, and thou shalt abide in me, and I in you. And then he says, Walk with me. Now, I want to come back to this one in just a second. Because if there's a buttonhole on this whole thing, it's going to be, walk with me. Because that's where power and vision really lies. Walk with me. We'll come back. But what he says, before he's going to walk with him, he's going to say, um, and the Lord spake unto Enoch and said, he need, this guy needs vision, so he's going to understand what this means. Enoch, anoint thy eyes and with clay, and wash them, and thou shalt see. And he did so. Very curious, isn't it? Anoint thine eyes with clay, and wash them, and thou shalt see. There are two times this happens uh, that I've found in the scriptures. This is one. The other one is obviously with Jesus and the man that's been blind since birth, where he's going to take a little spittle with clay, he anoints the man's eyes, and, and then he washes it uh, in the pool of Shalom. And he can see. 
And the symbolism there, I think, uh, as I've looked at this, uh, I have some sense, I guess, that perhaps the symbolism here in anointing with clay, because it seems like he could have just said, I'm going to enable you to see, now you'll see. Um, there's some symbolism with saying that man is of the dust of the earth, of the clay of the earth, that's, you know, the soil where he was. He's of the clay, and take that mortality with water and and you wash anoint your eyes and you will be able to see similar to the way that man was made of the dust of the earth when they partook of the tree of knowledge of good and evil they could now see but especially they could see after they were baptized after they were washed um, so I think there's something uh, to be said uh, certainly about that um, so now you're going to be able to see. And he beheld the spirits that God had created, and he beheld those things which were not visible to the natural eye. There is in that vision that God's going to say, I have reassured you, you're going to move mountains, you'll be fine, I know you're allowed, I'm going to promise you nobody's going to pierce you. But let me also give you vision. And that vision will come. I'm going to anoint your eyes. Now you're going to be able to see. And you will be like Elisha's little servant that goes, Oh, now I see what you were talking about. But I love that the Lord gave him more than just reassurance. He also gave him an opportunity to have vision. Now, how does that vision take place? Well, it goes back to what was said earlier. And that is this idea of walk with me. This idea of walking with him, um, I don't know if you can hear, we're getting some static. I'm not quite sure what that is, but uh, we'll survive here. Walk with me. The, the Lord isn't saying to him, walk in my paths, which he wanted him to do, obviously. Walk in the covenant path, which he'd want him to do. Walk the peaceable walk with the children of men, which he would want him to do. In this case, he's saying, walk with me. And we get that sense like in the road to Emmaus, where Jesus walked and taught uh, his disciples and expanded their view of the scriptures. And then they could see. And they said later, after he leaves, wait. Didn't our hearts burn within us? They had gotten internal vision. <clears throat> it wasn't just a matter of, we're, we're, you're supposed to believe me. It's a matter of, <clears throat> I will give you vision. And it will come again, like we were talking about with Alma. It'll come as you... Put open your heart and allow place for the word to be in there and wait for the heart to stir. I think that's internal vision. I think that's more than just reassurance. That's more than a missionary shows up with somebody and says, hey, the Book of Mormon is true. There's a prophet on the earth. When they pray about it, they get vision. And now they begin to know not just by reassurance. And I think that happens when we walk with him and a, that daily walk with him 
is is that process that that we're talking about okay so what we get is really I think um, and, and if we're going to kind of wrap all of this together what we're seeing in Enoch's call is is the Lord's transformational plan for us and it's in three it's in three steps uh, step number one of the Lord's transformational plan is that first of all he's going to make covenants and promises with us there is a reassurance that things are going to be okay okay so we get covenants and promises that's that's the holy reassurance that that we need number two comes an invitation walk with me prove me herewith I'm going to give you a promise and a covenant but I'm going to give you an opportunity to know more more personally as you walk with me that you're going to feel things you will experience things you will, as you serve you will walk away saying wow I felt that or I heard that or now I understand something is happening to us where we're going to be proved and as a result we're able to say I, I have vision I think we say it I think we hear it a lot for instance in fast and testimony settings where we hear someone say, I know that uh, God the Father and Jesus Christ appeared to Joseph Smith in the Sacred Grove. They weren't there. They don't know. Joseph Smith's the only one that was there along with God. But we have people all the time standing up in fast and testimony meeting and saying, I know that it's true. Well, that knowledge isn't knowledge that they, it's something they've seen with their eyes. That knowledge is something that they have seen through vision. And that vision came through experience and knowledge and understanding in that process. This is how the Lord intends us to be transformed and changed. If I promise and you accept my invitation, come unto me, be my people, do the things that I ask you to do. Because guess what? If you, if you do my doctrine and you do my will, you'll know that this is true. But it's going to come as you do. And you will have knowledge and understanding that you didn't have previously. As a result of that, with that vision, you will now allow yourself allow me to change you and make you into what I need you to be if you will allow vision you will give place that the great potter can come in and mold the clay into what he intends it to be not what we think it should be with our limited vision of who we are but with the knowledge and understanding that we have vision that he knows and will form us the inner vessel first and then the outer vessel and form us into somebody that can be filled with his glory and with his light and with his love 
and be changed. But that only comes when we're able to, to uh, receive that invitation and that reassurance. Brothers and sisters, my belief is that in the calling of Enoch, and as we talk next week about what he did with his city, and then a second city, Melchizedek city, that has the same experience that only comes to the Joseph Smith translation. We're going to have two cities that are going to be transformed and pulled into the bosom of God because they trusted this plan. There's no reason that at some point we can't do something similar if we will allow him to make changes in us as he intends. Again, I bear you my testimony that this is what he intends. That he loves us and will be there for us uh, in his timing and in his way, even though we are but a lad and all the people hate us. And I bear that testimony to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.